after all the recent crypto ads, I reached out to our investment counselors for their take. They dabbled briefly and backed out as it was too speculative. As always, the question is, what's your tolerance for risk? At my age, the answer is low. I invested $800 worth of Crow, that is Crypto.com's coin, turned into $8,000 once uh, the L.A. Staples Center changed their name to Crypto.com Center. Awesome. At some point, you've probably been told to never invest in something you don't understand. That hasn't stopped many from going all in on crypto. For a moment last year, the cryptocurrency market was worth more than $3 trillion. And this year, the message from crypto boosters is clear. What are you waiting for? Gentlemen, have you taken leave of your senses? The people shall have the right to vote. Even the stupid ones? Yes. Stupid people vote? Yes. Hey, Catherine, what's cooking? We're putting a man on the moon. Are you out of your mind? I can't even get tuna without celery. Nobody's going to the moon, ever. Like I was saying, it's FTX. It's a safe and easy way to get into crypto. Yeah, I don't think so. And I'm never wrong about this stuff. Never. But let me put it this way. Some of you aren't buying. From what I understand, it's pretty much locked up secret transactions between you and whoever you're transacting with. So the government doesn't have a way to see what you're doing. The IRS doesn't have a way to see what you're doing. Law enforcement doesn't have a way to see what you're doing. And it just sounds like an excellent recipe for the downfall of government as we know it everywhere. That's Alan, who called us from Vermont. And we know many more of you have a take on crypto, including its impact on the environment. And we'll get to that a bit later in the hour. But digital currencies are here. They're being sold hard. But is crypto a safe space for you to take a gamble with your money? We'll get into all that and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful, and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. We're discussing cryptocurrency and answering your questions. Joining us now is Katie Martin. She's markets editor for the Financial Times, and she joins us from London. Katie, welcome to 1A. 
Hi, thanks for having me. And closer to home, joining us from Washington, D.C., is writer and economist Ishvar Prasad. His latest book is called The Future of Money, How the Digital Revolution is Transforming Currencies and Finance. He's also a senior professor at Cornell University. Ishvar, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jen. It's great to be part of this discussion. So I think like Cher here on Twitter who says, I'm at a loss about the basics of crypto. Most of us would struggle to concisely describe what we mean by cryptocurrency. So Ishvar, please keep it simple. What exactly are we talking about? You know, Jen, in finances and everything else, timing is everything. In 2009, as you may remember, when we were going through the global financial crisis, trust in governments and uh, commercial banks was at at an all-time low. So that was exactly when Bitcoin came along, and it provided the promise of being able to conduct financial transactions without relying on central bank money, you know, the dollars that we have in our billfolds, or using a credit card or bank account, and to be able to do so using only our digital identities, not our real identities. So at some level, this was a mind-boggling promise, and remarkably, Bitcoin delivered. But it turned out ultimately that Bitcoin was not as good as people had thought at what it had promised. It turns out it's a very unstable um, valued medium of exchange, so it doesn't work very well for transactions. It also turns out it doesn't give you as much anonymity as it had promised. But what has happened is that Bitcoin has set off a revolution whereby you can actually conduct transactions using other types of cryptocurrencies. And even though cryptocurrency has this weird notion of things being very secret, in fact, it's not. What Bitcoin works um, as a result of is something that I think of as radical transparency. Every transaction ever undertaken using Bitcoin and the digital identities of all the transacting parties are all posted on these digital ledgers that are maintained on multiple computers around the world that are synchronized in real time. And that transparency and that multiplicity of computers on the network is what makes things secure. It makes it resilient and actually suggests that you can conduct transactions without trusted intermediaries. So whatever happens with Bitcoin, and I don't think it will last as a speculative asset, which is basically what it's become, because it's not serving as a medium of exchange. But the technology that Bitcoin has bequeathed to us, I think, is going to be transformative in finance. Well, I want to make sure we're clear here. Bitcoin is a type of cryptocurrency in the same way people may say Kleenex when they are referring to any type of of tissue. But Katie, explain really just the basics of cryptocurrency and blockchain. Because those are important to understand as well. Yeah, I mean, as as you say, you know, Bitcoin is only one of thousands of these coins. There there are all sorts. Some of them have got kind of named after stupid little jokes or swear words or, or or dogs that belong to Elon Musk, the founder of of Tesla, or or whatever it is. There has just been this huge proliferation, which is probably not what the original architects of Bitcoin had in mind when they pulled this thing together. Um, but yeah, all of the transactions, as Ishwar was saying, they're, they're all kind of, they're ultimately trackable on the blockchain. There's this new form of technology that some people, not everybody, but some people think is a really great way to actually do trade, to to buy and sell goods and services around the world and to be able to track products around the world. But really why this is blowing up now is precisely because there are just so many thousands of these coins kicking around. 
And what everybody wants to do is to do the same as what happened with Bitcoin, right? If you were one of the early believers in Bitcoin, then you've made a fortune out of this. And what if I can be one of those lucky individuals that can get in on the ground floor of any one of these huge number of other coins that, that are out there? Um, and that brings with it enormous potential for people who get it right, but also obviously massive potential personal financial losses to people who get it wrong. Hmm. And so is there an actual asset that's that's backing these pieces of information or is it just about trust? It's just about trust. So ultimately, when coins are created, then they the coins are effectively they're not physical coins, you can't really hold them into your hand, you don't you don't dig a piece of metal out of the ground or anything like that. It's a line of code that is effectively worth however much the next person who comes along is prepared to buy it off you for. That's it. It, it's not really a currency as we would normally understand it. It's not something that you can easily just pop down to the coffee shop and, and get your morning brew. You can't go to the supermarket and do your weekly shop. You, you know, you can't normally pay your taxes with, with these things. They are lines of code that some people believe is, is worth something. And there's enough people now who believe that they're worth something that the value of a lot of these lines of code have, has gone up. Really... Possibly the better way to think about these crypto assets, and a lot of central bankers are very fixed on referring to them as crypto assets rather than cryptocurrencies, is they're not currencies like we would normally expect them to behave. They are effectively products. And think of them as, as, as collectibles, as, as little trinkets that some people just want to collect for whatever reason. And they change hands for whatever price the, the market for people who believe in these trinkets think they're going to be worth. So the price is extremely volatile. It's subject to all sorts of um, disruptive factors that other types of financial markets are not subject to. And they really are just worth as much as the next person thinks they are. Ishvar, you argue that for money to work, we have to trust that, it'll, that it will work. But to what extent are there actual guarantees with crypto? There are none. Um, the reality here is, as Katie suggested, um, it's largely built on investors' faith. Now, one might think that if something has intrinsic value, in other words, if you can actually use it as a medium of exchange for conducting transactions or something of the sort, then something might have value. But the reality is that um, these decentralized cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin, where decentralized essentially means that there is no agency or institution that is behind the issuance or management of those currencies, those uh, are really being born on investors' faith and the notion that these are going to be scarce. And that I don't think is really a durable source of value in the long term. I want to bring another voice into the conversation. Sam Bankman-Fried is the CEO and co-founder of the FTX Crypto Exchange. Sam, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So what impact do you think exchanges like yours are having on banks and financial systems around the world? You know, so far, I think the impact has been fairly muted. But I think that there might be pretty large impact over the next decade or so. And I, I think the biggest thing is being able to provide equitable access to financial services that really has not been an opportunity for the underbanked in the United States and globally, especially in jurisdictions that do not have strong fiat systems. Now, in December, you were part of a congressional hearing held in Washington. Lawmakers wanted to hear more about the role of regulators in cryptocurrency. I'm Brian Brooks, CEO of Bitfury, that's a firm that helps support the blockchain, had this to say. We already have a regulatory system. The laws are super clear how it works. But there's something about crypto that scares people. 
I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just because it's new. But I remember in my banking law class when banks were first allowed to use computers to keep ledgers, people sued over that at the time. But it seems like we haven't really learned the underlying lesson, which is technology usually advances human flourishing. We have a regulatory system. Let's use it. Again, that's Brian Brooks, CEO of the Bitfury Group, and he's worked both for the government and the private sector, making the case for why new rules aren't needed. But Sam, I'm curious to hear from you what role you think regulators should play. Yeah, I think regulators should play an active role in overseeing the digital asset industry the same as they do for other industries. I think to some extent you can apply current laws uh, to the crypto industry. I think especially when you look at things like, you know, um, anti-money laundering laws and, uh, you know, anti-market manipulation laws. I think many of those just part over pretty cleanly to the digital asset industry. I think for some things around clearing and custody, there needs to be some tweaks and you know, regulators need to be able to take the principles of the current regulatory framework, but apply them to a different technology stack. But overall, I think there does need to be federal oversight uh, in order to protect consumers and you know, protect against systemic risk. Now, you reminded Congress that 95% of crypto trading volume occurs actually offshore. Your own company operates out of the Bahamas. But what's the risk of that reputation you're trying to build for FTX, um, that it could get blown up by a rogue actor or or tainted by the known criminality that is taking place in this space? I think it's really important that we are, you know, both compliant with regulations as they exist, but also that we're able to police our own exchange, even in the absence of regulation. And so, you know, the way that we think about it is, look, we have a global mandate to prevent money laundering from happening on our platform, to prevent financial crimes, to prevent manipulative activities on our markets. That's true whether or not there are regulations around it. And in some jurisdictions, there are some sets of regulations, there are others in other jurisdictions. That doesn't change what our responsibility and our mandate is. And I think you're exactly right that, you know, it is incumbent upon us to ensure that our platform is, you know, being used to give equitable financial access, not to facilitate financial crimes. We've heard from a lot of our listeners that they're concerned about getting involved in crypto because of the impact on the environment. And is this something your company is trying to address? Absolutely. So first of all, um, you know, 80% of the transfers that happen, uh, you know, uh, in and out of FTX, use extremely energy efficient proof of stake blockchains that have effectively no climate impact. Um, For the minority that do use uh, more carbon intensive um, proof of work transfers, we both uh, buy full carbon offsets, but also invest equally in uh, carbon removal technology um, and and other R&D trying to combat climate change. Um, And we're also helping to build out and support the energy efficient uh, methods in the crypto industry and, uh, you know, encouraging miners to switch to renewable energy sources. I want to circle back to something you said about the unbanked and how you think this is an opportunity for people who have traditionally been unbanked to have access to some form of banking. But cryptocurrency, as I understand it right now, is really based on this idea of investing in something and, and buying something. So how would that work? Yeah. So if you think about what access the traditional investor has, either to banks or to you know, investments, it's it, it actually quite, um, quite difficult. You know, you usually go through 10 different intermediaries if you're trying to buy a stock in the United States between the brokerages, the PFAW firms, the dark pools, the clearing, the custody, ultimately the exchange. Um, and, and what this means is that the access that the traditional investor has looks nothing like the access that a high frequency trading firm has to financial markets. Um, on, on FTX and in crypto in general, all users have exactly the same access. The platform, they can go straight to matching engine without further intermediation. So I think that's one piece of it. 
And I think the other piece is, especially when you look internationally, a lot of people do not have access to a stable fiat currency um, with a bank account that works for them and will you know, not uh, freeze their assets if they want to speak their mind politically. Um, you know, I, I think in a lot of countries, this has become a larger problem. Um, and, and I think more generally that uh, it's actually quite difficult to maintain functional bank accounts for a lot of people. When you look at you know overdraft fees that are charged because the bank is too slow to process transactions that are taking you know, three days to hit the user's account. And so being able to return that actual direct access to users um, to you know not just investing and trading, but also to their wallet. You know, you can store uh, dollars on crypto platforms. You can have direct access to it yourself. You can spend from it. Um, you can earn interest on it. Um, all you know in a, a with a lot more control than you can get through most bank accounts. Well, again, Washington is paying your company close attention. FTX was valued at thirty-two billion dollars earlier this month. If we speak to you this time next year, what would be one big policy change you'd hope to see regarding regulation? I think there's, you know, a few things. I think one of them is clarity around the federal oversight of spot cryptocurrency markets, uh, many of which um, currently fall in a void between the CFTC and the SEC. I think another thing is oversight of stablecoin balance sheets to ensure that they are audited. And the last thing that I would say is a token registration process that has some, you know, analogies to current securities registration processes to ensure that, you know, the things that people are getting access to have full disclosure. That's Sam Bankman-Fried. He's the CEO and co-founder of the FTX Crypto Exchange. Sam, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We asked you what concerns you have about crypto, and here's what some of you shared. This is Ginger in Washington State. I've thought about investing in crypto, but it is a huge energy suck. And from a climate perspective, it is a no-go. Hi, my name is Courtney. I'm calling from Durham, North Carolina. I have questions about the environmental impact of cryptocurrencies. People are thinking about increasing their assets outside of traditional banking systems, which I think is awesome. However, the mining that supports cryptocurrencies is something that we don't talk a lot about. And I think that's really important. And Christina in Pittsburgh says, please discuss the crypto and the environment in detail. It sounds like a trend that, like others, will too quickly lead us down a dangerous road before the long-term impacts are considered. Ishvar, first, just when we talk about mining and crypto, what are we talking about specifically? So in 1999, um, a decade before Bitcoin came along, my Cornell colleague Ari Jewels devised this um, method of validating transactions called proof-of-work. That was adopted by Bitcoin, and it is incredibly clever. It provides people with computing power, um, you know, an incentive in the form of Bitcoin rewards to undertake the process of validating transactions. Now, this is kind of important because if you have um, a dollar bill, you go into a coffee shop, you um, pay with it, and it's gone. But with the digital asset, you could, in principle, double spend it or triple spend it. It turns out that this proof-of-work consensus mechanism is essentially one by which you can make sure that this double spending can be avoided. And it's a way in which the security of the Bitcoin blockchain can be preserved. Essentially, people compete to solve numerical problems created by the algorithm, and whoever throws the most computing power at it has the best chance of solving it, gets the privilege of validating those transactions as legitimate and adding them to the blockchain, which is what makes the blockchain very secure. 
Now, it's worth noting here that this proof-of-work mechanism is environmentally destructive. It involves huge amounts of computing power, so you need electricity to run the computers, cool the computers. There is a lot of computer detritus that is created. But we are now moving to other types of validation protocols which are much more efficient in terms of the speed of processing transactions and don't have as uh, a, a destructive an environmental impact. So I think the Bitcoin blockchain is a problem. Um, and of course, it's still the largest cryptocurrency around. The second largest cryptocurrency, Ethereum, is in the process of moving to a proof-of-stake consensus protocol, which is going to be much more environmentally efficient. So I think we will come to the day when cryptocurrencies can, in fact, be used and their blockchain technology can be used much more efficiently. But right now, it is a problem. So, Katie, as Ishvar says there, we're not there yet. So how big of an issue is this environmental question, particularly if they're looking to attract young investors? Yeah, as, as Ishwar was saying, you know, we're moving towards a point where a lot of the crypto market will be powered by much more energy efficient processes. But we're, we're, we're definitely not there yet. And, you know, when we talk about mining crypto, um, you know, we're not talking about digging into the ground and discovering something. There, there are these gigantic warehouses full of computers that are just desperately trying to solve these puzzles that effectively unlock these coins and, and, and you know, as Ishwar was saying, you are then able to validate it and put it on the blockchain. This process globally uses more electricity than Norway or Ukraine. It uses a little less electricity than Egypt or Poland, going on the latest data from, the, um, from Cambridge. Um, that sounds like a lot, and it is a lot. It's also twice as much as all of the domestic televisions in the U.S., now, you can make a judgment, you know, as, as, a, as a consumer, whether you personally, when you're considering buying cryptocurrencies, and this is just Bitcoin as well, by the way, this isn't all of the cryptocurrencies, you can make a judgment as to whether you think that's a reasonable price to pay in terms of carbon for your opportunity to make a lot of money. Maybe it is. Maybe there is a social utility here that is worth that much carbon, but it's definitely an argument that has to be proven. That's Katie Martin. She's the markets editor for the Financial Times. Katie, thanks for speaking with us today. Pleasure. Now, still to come, we know about 16% of Americans hold or trade crypto. So it's worth taking a look at who is part of that 16%. It includes the new Democratic mayor of New York, Eric Adams, and plenty of those on the far right, too. That leaves the vast majority of us on the sidelines. So what are the chances that digital currencies can help the millions of Americans who are unbanked? Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to all things crypto. And joining us now from New York is Stacey Marie Ishmael. She's the managing editor for crypto at Bloomberg News. Stacey, welcome to the program. 
Hello. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. So I'd love to take a moment to talk about those left behind in conversations about finance. According to an FDIC survey, more than 7 million Americans were unbanked in 2019. That means no checking or savings account at a bank or credit union. Now, Stacey, when we talk about those who are classified as unbanked, what do we know about this group and why they're unbanked? often folks who are living paycheck to paycheck, who are relying on payday lenders and other forms of often um, what could be considered predatory lending, where you are borrowing money at extremely high interest rates. They are folks who, because they have had no access to the credit system, can't get a credit card, which means in the U.S. they can't get on the credit system, which means they can never, you know, thinking about things like buying a house or having a mortgage is so far off in the future when you can't even convince a bank to let you open an account. Or if you do open an account, you're increasingly hit with, you know, a minimum set of fees if you don't have a certain type of balance. And all of that is can be very frustrating and just frankly very hard and time-consuming for for folks to want. The unbanked population will all include people who may be undocumented, don't have forms of identification that might be accepted by a bank to allow them to open those accounts. And it's, you know, in, in the U.S. at least, it's not it, that's not a small number of people. What role could digital currencies play in narrowing the gap between those who get to, to play in this space and those who are traditionally excluded? Well, folks who are making this argument point to a couple of things. One is that it is, in theory, easier for someone, even if they don't necessarily have an existing credit history or relationship with the banking system, to buy crypto of some kind. The reality, though, is that it's getting harder and harder to do that if you are a person who doesn't have some form of acceptable identification. It's also true that if you want to buy crypto, you tend to need money to do that in the first place, right? And so in a lot of cases, you're like, okay, you need a bank account to fund your ability to buy crypto. Um, There are increasingly like crypto ATMs where at Walmart you can deposit dollars and, you know, kind of create a Bitcoin account. So there are folks who are trying to solve for those things. But I don't think that it is true with the way that things are right now, that crypto is like a slam dunk for financial inclusion. We also got this comment from Patrick who says, with the United States moving to a central bank digital currency, take away the power of decentralized banking and move us even closer to governmental control of public finances. Ishwar, what do you think? That's a very important question. Now, the Federal Reserve recently put out a policy paper talking about the pros and cons of having a digital dollar, which would essentially be digital versions um, of the dollars that at least some of us still carry in our billfolds, although most of us have now moved to digital payments. Um, There are going to be many benefits to having a digital dollar. Uh, That could be the way to financial inclusion, that is giving everybody access to a low-cost digital payment system, um, making it easier for consumers, small businesses to not have to deal with the hassle of uh, dealing with cash. It will bring a lot of economic activity out of the shadows, potentially reduce counterfeiting and so on. But the one thing that is worth keeping in mind, Jen, and I think the Federal Reserve is wisely saying that uh, it's going to hold off uh, for this reason, is that it means that we're going to have much less privacy. As it is, we have very little privacy, but if all our transactions are going to be seen by a government agency or a central bank or by a private payments provider, that might be a slightly uncomfortable proposition for all of us. So the Fed has said it will move forward with the digital dollar, which is technically quite feasible, only if there is broad 
political and public support for it. Well, Stacey, let's talk about the political appeal of crypto. Why has New York's new mayor, Eric Adams, made it known he wants his first three paychecks to be paid in Bitcoin? Well, I think that was partly in response to what I will describe as something of a crypto bromance between him and Mayor Suarez in in Miami, who's also been a big a big advocate for crypto and for Bitcoin, as well as for a, sort of a Miami-based local cryptocurrency. From the Adams perspective, however, one of the things that he's very aware of is that this is a major burgeoning sector for jobs and hiring. Um, my colleagues at Bloomberg have been reporting for a few months that many, many, many jobs and hundreds of millions of dollars are flowing into you know, crypto and financial services broadly. And I think that one of the things that Adams recognizes is, you know, he, he made some comments today about like, we need, we need to get back to the office. We need to be doing work. We need to be helping the New York economy thrive. And from that perspective, it certainly makes sense to try to be attractive to a sector that is absolutely where some of the economic growth is right now. Stacey, The Economist was one of a few outlets to recently report on crypto's appeal to the far right. What's going on here and how much of an issue could this be if crypto is trying to broaden its appeal? I would say that folks who feel that the government does not represent them or that they are disenfranchised in some way or that for whatever reason they are trying to evade what they persuade to be or perceive to be a surveillance state will go to the the darker or perhaps murkier corners of financial services. And there are ways in which Bitcoin specifically, but certainly some of the other tokens, were sort of set up to appeal to those sensibilities. Um, there is an ideology baked into Bitcoin that is kind of about the rejection of the status quo, which is very much politically aligned with some of what we're seeing. There's also a perception, and I think an inaccurate one, that crypto makes it very easy to move money in ways that can't be surveilled. As we're finding, that is less and less true, right? We had that case just about a week or so ago of the Department of Justice recovering $3.6 billion worth of crypto and, you know, alleging that it had been laundered by two folks in New York. And one of the ways that they found that was that they were able to trace the accounts that, you know, the, the two people who are facing those allegations were moving crypto around in, and especially when they were trying to then translate that into into dollars. And so I think that some of the perception that, okay, you know, if you if you want to hide from the government, Bitcoin is the answer is a little bit overblown. Well, we've spent this hour talking about digital currency, but let's end on whether a case can be made for cool, hard cash. Take this scene from the series, The West Wing. The National Security Advisor and the Secretary of State didn't know who they were taking their orders from. I wasn't in the Situation Room that night, but I'll bet all the money in my pockets against all the money in your pockets that it was Leo, who no one elected. For 90 minutes that night, there was a coup d'etat in this country. Now, Ishvar, this scene is showing its age because when was the last time people carried a lot of cash in their pockets? But even if cash is on its way out, do you think cash matters? And if so, why? You know, the reality is that from developing countries like China to advanced economies like Sweden, cash is uh, disappearing very fast. Um, but cash has some attractive features. It's um, it's tangibility. It's nice. You know, I still tip my Uber drivers and the coffee baristas with cash because it creates a sort of personal connection. 
And most importantly, from a societal perspective, it uh, gives us anonymity in our financial transactions. Now, whether that's a good thing or not is, uh, uh, is a matter of uh, debate because, after all, cash is used for a variety of illicit purposes for, you know, drug trafficking, money laundering, and so on. And for uh, businesses, small businesses in particular, you know, handling cash, um, dealing with the potential uh, loss, theft, and so on, a real concern. So I think the reality is that the world is moving towards a digital payments age, and we need to make sure that we take care of those who could be uh, disenfranchised by this, you know, the poor, the elderly who may not be technologically savvy, people in rural areas without easy uh, internet or even wireless connectivity. But the reality is that the days of cash uh, are beginning to draw to an end. That's economist Ishvar Prasad. He's the author of the new book, The Future of Money, How the Digital Revolution is Transforming Currencies and Finance. He's also a senior professor at Cornell University. Also with us, Stacey Marie Ishmael, the managing editor for crypto at Bloomberg News. Ishvar, Stacey Marie, thank you for speaking with us. It's been my pleasure, Jen. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. This is 1A.